Folks, we are in John chapter 4 this morning. John chapter 4, no surprise there, but we're going to continue in our important subject of worship. This is, this is an incredible topic. So much more we could say than what I'm going to be able to cover last week and this week. But worship is... Uh, you're defined, uh, worship defines you. What, what you worship defines who you are, what you believe, what's important to you. You are wired for worship. We all worship. Unbelievers worship. Everybody worships. We all are bowing down to something. We are all giving adoration to something. We are all making much of something. And seeking significance and importance and value from something. Whether it's our job, whether it's our family, whether it's our drugs or sex or money or whatever. We are called to worship God. Unbelievers worship, but they don't worship rightly. But as believers, we have been saved to be worshipers. We learned that in John chapter 4. God wants us to make much of Him and worship Him. The greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. The greatest act of worship is expressed right there. To do that. To do that because you love God. To, to love Him with all your heart, your soul, and in mind. This subject is brought up by Jesus in a scene in John chapter 4, 42 verses of the scene of the Samaritan woman at the well. I went through that whole passage a couple weeks ago and just took you through the whole narrative. Unusual about it was that Jesus and the disciples traveled through Samaria. Samaria was a land that uh, a, a a land within Israel that was basically uh, Jews would have no association with the people in Samaria. Jesus had an appointment, an appointment with this woman at the well. We learn as he goes there and talks to her and goes against all norms of society and talks to a Samaritan, talks to a woman, talks to a woman like her, obviously a prostitute. And Jesus, in talking with her, offers her living water. Jesus, in talking with her, brings her to the point where she understands that he knows a lot about her, that he knows that she has a very uh, bad past, that she is burdened by that because she's been ostracized by her own people because of the many husbands that she has had, life of adultery. Jesus points to her sin. It opens up the conversation. He talks about in the midst of that, this topic of worship, tells her that he is the Messiah. She runs into the city, tells the other people in the town of Sychar. Many of them run out to meet him. The gospel comes to Samaria. Many are saved, we're told, in the passage. God used this woman to reach the Samaritans. 
giving proof to the fact that he is the Savior of not only the Jews, but the Savior of the world. So this is an incredible, incredible scene in John chapter 4. But I told you in the midst of that, he teaches us about worship. You see that we're going to begin in verse 19, and I'm going to read down to verse 26. The woman, the Samaritan woman, verse 19 of John chapter 4, the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. They worshiped in Mount Gerizim. They worshiped, been worshiping there for 500 years. They were half, they were half quote, breed Jews, according to the Jews. They'd intermarried with Gentiles. That was the Samaritans, not allowed to go in the temple in Jerusalem. So they had their own temple. Our fathers worshiped here. You say Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, and this is important, woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain, Mount Gerizim, behind you there, nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. It will not be about a place one day. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father, notice, in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ, when that one comes, he will declare all things to us. And then Jesus says something to her that he has not said to anybody up until this point. I am the Messiah. I who speak to you am he. And so true, true worship is the theme of this very brief paragraph. The Greek word for worship is used 11 times in the whole book of John. Nine of those times right here in this paragraph I just read to you. So that's the theme. Worship, as I told you last time, is ascribing to God all the honor and praise and adoration that he deserves. Ascribing the truths about who he is. Magnifying him to the world. Proclaiming his excellencies. Living a life that glorifies him and puts him on display. A life that makes him look famous. That's worship. Last time I took you through some introductory thoughts from the Old Testament. This morning, as we prepare our hearts for this communion table, I want you to see what Jesus teaches about worship in this passage. And then I want you to grade yourself. Grade yourself as you come to the table this morning. Examination before we partake of these elements. Look what Jesus says. Notice he identifies two characteristics of worship. Notice in verse 23, the characteristics in spirit and truth. In the context, Jesus is making a con contrast in this context. He's contrasting with what has just been said in the previous verse. Notice, with the worship that is caught up in external things like place of worship. This is Mount, we worship on Mount Gerizim. We worship on this mountain, verse 20 and 21 says. And you worship in Jerusalem. 
place. And then he's also contrasting in worship that is uninformed and ignorant. You worship in ignorance. You worship what you do not know. Then verse 23, but an hour is coming and now is. Jesus is saying, my work is ushering in a change in worship. It will be in spirit and in truth. No, wor- no longer is worship going to be about a place, a geographical place. It's no longer going to be about a, without knowledge of God. That's what he's telling her. It's not going to be what you've been accustomed to. It's not even going to be what the Jews have been accustomed to. True worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Notice first, Jesus says a true worshiper, excuse me, defines a true worshiper as a true believer. Understand this. A true worshiper is a true believer. Synonymous. Every genuine Christian will worship. Every Christian. True worshipers are believers, and believers are worshipers. John chapter 3, you're born again. That was the, that was the terms that were used about being born again, uh, being regenerated in John chapter 3. In a physical birth, when a baby is born in a physical birth, the natural response after that birth is to cry. But when you're born again, and you've been regenerated, and you receive grace that you know you do not deserve, the natural response is worship. I I worship God. Thank you, God. Thank you for opening my blind eyes, God. I praise you, God. I'm not worthy to be forgiven. I'm such a sinner. You You break out in worship. That's the natural response of the true believer. And you're going to recognize a true worshiper because they worship in spirit and truth. Both of these are nouns. Spirit and truth are nouns. They have one preposition, the word in. You don't separate, you don't separate uh, spirit and truth. They go together. They go together. And this is the heart of worship. I, I heard somebody say, they se- I heard somebody separate them. He says, you know, the reason we have, this is justification for why we have, a, we have two services in our church. We have the spirit service and the truth service. We have the contemporary service, that's the spirit service. And we have the truth service, that's the traditional service. And his basis for saying that was this verse. Breaking them up. One, that's crazy. But two... You don't break these up. They, they go together. They're two qualities that stay together and they identify the true worshiper. Two nouns that de- de- define us and that, de- that tell us uh, the characteristics of acceptable worship. Let's start with truth. Let's just start with truth for a moment. Let me just tell you about truth in this verse. If you are going to worship in truth, it means your worship must be directed to the biblical God revealed in Scripture. You must worship the true God. 
That's truth. If it's the wrong God, it's not true worship. If you are directing your worship somewhere else, that's not true worship. If your worship is ascribing things to God that are not true about God, that is not true worship. You need to be sure you know who the God of the Bible is. You need to know his attributes as spelled out for us in the scripture. He is not the man upstairs. He is not a man at all. He is not a genie in the sky that just does everything you want him to do. He is not a God made in your image. He is not like you at all in that sense. He does not have flesh and bones. He is not a God that you can manage and control. That is not the God of the Bible. He is not a God created in your image to do the things that you think he should be doing. That is not God. You need to be sure if you're going to be involved in true worship that you know truth about God. It's the right God. There's a lot of false gods on the scene, a lot of false understandings of God. And people bow down to those false gods all the time. I was reading in Psalm 95 this morning, and yesterday morning actually as well, and it was interesting just to read that the Israelites, they erred in their heart, and they did not know my ways. They came up with their false gods and understanding of God, and they weren't even worshiping the true God anymore. The second thing is, your worship to be true must be based on the revelation, all of the revelation of Scripture, all of God's Word. The Samaritans only used the first five books of the Bible, the, the Pentateuch, first five books. They didn't even go, they didn't go past Deuteronomy. They believed that the temple should be in um, Mount Gerizim because uh, Jacob did a sacrifice in Shechem, and Shechem took place in Genesis. Therefore, build your temple in Mount Gerizim near Shechem. They were basing their understanding of that. If they would have read further, they would have known that God wanted the temple built in Jerusalem in 2 Chronicles 6.6. See, they were only using part of the Bible, the part they liked. You make sure you're using all of the revelation of God, that you don't have an incomplete revelation. This is why uh, you worship what you do not know, he says to the Samaritan woman. That's a rebuke. You Samaritans don't know what you're doing in worship. You're incomplete. Thirdly, our worship must include what Scripture prescribes. You heard Doug used that term in his prayer. Scripture prescribes some things that we are to do in worship. The Scripture doesn't just say, everybody go do whatever they want to do. The Scripture doesn't say, go do what is right in your own eyes when you worship. No, the Scripture gives us prescription on how to worship. I think this is very, very important. The regulative principle or regulative principle You may have heard of that term before, maybe not, it doesn't really matter, but it tells us what the Scripture says we should do, and that's a great theological principle to refer to. Uh, We don't just do what our own imaginations say to do. 
This is our worship manual, by the way. This is what we look to. God, you are the one that saved us. You have saved us to be worshipers. Now tell us how to do it. You told us how to be saved in this book. You told us how to become worshipers. And now you tell us how to worship. This is our worship manual. This regulates our worship. Tom Pennington's very helpful on this, but he, from the, the, the Westminster Confession and others' documents, uh, come up with seven things, seven elements of worship. Seven things that we should do, that the Scripture says we should do when we gather to worship. And this is nothing new. These are things that have always been throughout church history. But these are things that God says. It's not like the elders just get together and say, well, let's just make up a worship service. That's, that's not our job. Our job is to look to the Bible and say, what does the Bible say a worship service looks like? A time of gathering looks like? What are we to do in that time? What are we to do that would bring honor and glory to God? Oh, a lot of us have ideas about what we think we would enjoy, but the question is, what does God want? What brings glory to God? This is so very important because he is the one that matters. He is the audience. He is the one watching us. And we want to please him. So the first thing I would say, these seven, there's seven things listed in these documents and that I think are very helpful that regulate worship. And one of them is we sing scripture. We sing scripture. We sing music <clears throat> that is rooted in the truth of God's word. We sing songs that reflect what the Bible says about God. We sing songs that when you sing them, you are being taught about God through the songs that are being sung. We sing songs that are deep theologically. We sing songs, sing songs that draw our attention to God. It's not that we sing songs just so we can feel good personally. We don't, it's not so that we can just worship the music. We sing songs that draw our attention to God. Very important. Too much worship music is focused on how making you feel a certain way. And I think the byproduct is certainly a feeling, but the emphasis is always on the content and what it's doing and what it's saying about God. Is it true? Are we saying things that the Bible says about God when we sing songs? And that's why we're very careful, very careful about the words in the songs. Do they, do they reflect what the Scripture says? Because everything we do tells us something about God, tells you something about what we think about God. So that's, that's the first principle. The second one is we pray. We pray. This is something else that the Bible says we should do when we come together corporately like this. We should pray. We should pray in ways that grow out, uh, out of our response to the Scripture. We should pray according to God's will. I know God's will because this says it. I don't pray because I want to twist God's arm. I pray because I want to pray according to and bring glory to and respond to what God has said. That's how our prayers are to be. We are to pray that way. We are to pray as the Scripture instructs us to pray. Are you getting the gist of this? It's the, we're not the authority. Your pastors are not the authority on this. No one, no one is the authority on this except God and His Word. 
And we're just simply seeking to line up with that. Thirdly, we are to give offerings uh, to, to support the, the scriptural uh, worship that we do here and the evangelism that leads others to Christ and plants churches that do the same thing. We, we give offerings to that for that purpose as part of our worship. And we read the Scripture. Number four, we read the Scripture. Paul said to Timothy, give attention to the reading of the Word. You just stand up and read the Bible to you like it was done this morning because these are God's thoughts. This is God's mind. This is God's wisdom. You don't come here to hear my opinion. You don't come here to hear man's opinion. You come here to hear what God has to say. That's your greatest need. You don't need my experiences and my, my wisdom. You need God's wisdom. I need God's wisdom. So we come, we come here to read the Scripture. And we teach the Scripture we teach the Scripture. You know that. We're a, ch- a church that has a high view of God's Word. We teach the Word because we believe it's God's breathed words. And we preach it and teach it. And you sit under that teaching. And it's always amazed me when I've read in 2 Timothy chapter 3, you read in chapter one of the first verses of chapter 1 about how terrible the last days are going to be. Men will be lovers of self. Men will uh, be haters of what is good. Men will hate their parents, not, not obey, disobedient to parents. And the list goes on and persecutions and all of these horrible things and false teachers. It's just a horrible scene in the last days. And Paul's comment to Timothy is, Timothy, this is how I want you to respond. I want you to hold on to to those teachings that you were taught as a child. I want you to hold on to God's words. I want you to hold on to them because in verses 16 through 18, he says, because they are God-breathed and they are able to build you up and they are able to equip people and they're able to help people stand in these difficult days in which we live. And then he goes on in chapter four, verse two, and he says, now, Timothy, you preach the word. Don't get into the culture wars, Timothy. Don't get all wrapped up in the culture wars. Timothy, just preach the word. Just preach it. Let God's word do the work that it needs to do to change hearts. That is, the, that is a priority of a church that gathers to worship. Preach the word. And that's our priority. It's not because we just made that up. It's not just because I like to do Bible study. It's because this is what God says this time is supposed to be. This is how we are to worship. And and then another thing, another principle from this is we see the Scripture acted on in baptism. Baptism. The baptistry back here is commanded by Christ that believers be baptized. We know that, and we teach that when a, before a person ever goes under the water, that they've already been baptized. They've already been baptized by Christ. They've already been baptized by the Holy Spirit. We know that baptism is just a picture 
that the Scripture teaches about what happens in salvation with regeneration. We know that that is, and that is to be practiced in the church. That is something that we are prescribed to do as part of our, our worship. Baptism is simply a picture of the baptism that has already taken place spiritually. And number seven, we, we see the scripture acted out as we partake of the elements of this communion table later in the service. Paul says, proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This, this is like a, a picture sermon of the death of Christ, reminding us that he reminding us that sin is the issue and Christ came to take away sin. And this is what he did. He came as a sacrifice for sin. And so you see those things and you go, wow, that's all that's in the Bible. The Bible says that's what you're to do in a worship service. That's exactly right. That is what we are to do. The principle tells us what we should do and why we shouldn't do other things. I had a pastor friend tell me one time, he said to me, he goes, what you need to do, Rod, in your worship service is you need to just open it up and let everybody just share something. And he's talking about in this particular time. I'm not against that in other times, but I started thinking, wow, anybody that knows me knows that goes way against me. But the point is, all I could think about was that's not in the that's not in the that's not prescribed. That's not prescribed. That could end up being chaotic, quite frankly. I mean, you would have some people that I'm sure would stand up and give true, true honor and praise and worship to God. But the other danger is you could have people stand up and use it as a political forum, or people who would stand up and use it as an opportunity to talk about visions and other things. And then you could have other issues taking place and all of that. Things that would draw attention away from the worship of God and his word. And so it's not prescribed. So that was an easy answer <laughs> to that question. But always the temptation to add things that take away from and distract from worshiping and praising God, keeping the focus on Him. So when we do these things, when we do all of these things, we're truly worshiping according to the Bible. We're truly worshiping. It's interesting to me that God told the Jews to go to Jerusalem to worship. There was a place in the Old Testament. Go to Jerusalem. There's a, a place that I will dwell in the tabernacle within the temple of in Jerusalem. That's your place of worship. You go there so many times a year and you sacrifice there. Understand this. God was uniquely in that temple, but he wasn't exclusively in that temple. You understand? He was uniquely there, but he wasn't exclusively there. Jews could talk to God and pray to God when they weren't at the temple. Jews could worship privately when they weren't at the temple. And that's even true with us today because the place is not the issue, uh, John says in John chapter 4. In other words, I would say to you that you don't need to come to 731 North Gadsden Street to worship God. 
I would say with a qualifier that you are told to. You're told to. I would say that he is uniquely in our midst when we are gathered together, but he's not exclusively here. He's, he, we can worship God everywhere. So it's very important to just to understand that worship is not about a location with the qualifier that you are not to forsake the assembling of yourselves together. I cannot do these prescribed things I just listed for you all by myself. Some of them, yes, but not all of these things. I could not gather together. I could not do the 41 another's that are in the Bible by myself. I need to be with other believers to do those things. So though we would say God is everywhere and we would say God can be worshipped in any place, he does tell us that we are, as a qualifier, we are to come together to worship and to do it like this that we've just seen. We have so many one another's and, uh, that we are to be giving glory to God by being a blessing in other people's lives, in each other's lives. Another point that I would make on this is worship must be grounded in a life of obedience to the Word. Um, Paul, excuse me, Samuel said, has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed heed than the fat of rams. He's not saying that sacrificial system was not important. He was just simply saying God does not accept worship that does not come out of a life, that comes out of a life of disobedience. If you're living in disobedience, you're not worshiping. You must first make that right so that you can worship. The Jews were told to do certain things, but they were always told to do it first by dealing with their sin. And that's true of us as well. If you go to Matthew chapter 5, he says in Matthew chapter 5, if you go to the altar, he says, and you're, while you're at the altar to make an, present an offering to the Lord, that you remember that your brother has something against you. He says, leave your offering there and go make it right with your brother first. You can't worship God in disobedience. The, the psalmist says, the, 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 the psalmist makes it very clear, if you regard iniquity in your heart, he will not hear. So these are very important, very important in thinking about worship. What is the condition of my heart as I come to worship? God is not listening. God is not listening if I'm living a life of disobedience. The only thing he has to say to you is to repent and make that right. And then finally, worship is to be centered on Christ. And I love this statement in, back in John chapter 4. The, the Samaritan's view was limited, but this woman says this. The woman said to him in verse 25, I know that the Messiah is coming. He who, called is, he who is called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Um, she was living in unrepentant sin, and she is saying, I know, Rabbi, I know what you are saying must be true, but I know when the Messiah comes, 
he will declare everything to us. Even though she had limited knowledge, she didn't know about the Messiah. She didn't know he would be a mediator. She didn't know that he would tell her all things when he came. She didn't know that he was one through whom uh, the Father would seek worshipers. And in verse 26, Jesus says to her, I who speak to you am he. And that's what Jesus says to anybody who's here this morning and doesn't know Christ. Jesus is saying to you the same thing he said to the Samaritan woman. I am he. I am that mediator. I am the one. I am the one who can save you that you might be a worshiper of God. If you're here this morning and and you know that you're not a worshiper of God, you know that you're not right with God, the only way you can get to God is through Christ. That's what he's telling this woman. I am he. I am he. For worship to be acceptable, it must be in truth. And that's what we looked at in this first part here, the truth. Spirit and truth. We must understand truth. It's very important. Truth must inform our worship. Truth must be what our worship is saturated in. And we must be a church that upholds the truth, have a high view of God and a high view of God's word. And then he talks about the Spirit. You see that also in verse 23. Go back to John 4, verse 23. An hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. These are the kind of people that the Father seeks to be his worshipers. Some people have thought, and I've read lots of people that disagree with back and forth on this, is that talking about the Holy Spirit or is that talking about the human spirit? Is that talking about the Holy Spirit in terms of it's the Holy Spirit that regenerates us and makes worship possible, that energizes worship and feeds worship in us? Is that that verse is talking about? Or are we talking here about the human spirit? Are we here talking about the inner man? You follow me? Worship comes from the inner man. The reason I think this is talking about the inner man and not the Holy Spirit, though I totally agree with what the Holy Spirit does in worship, I think this is talking about the inner man because the context was talking about a place of worship. It used to be in that place. Now it's in this place. You follow me? It used to be outside of me. Now it's inside of me. I worship from the heart. I worship from the inner man. That's what we're talking about here. It's in truth, but it's also from within me. Uh, so I think that's, that's the connection. I think the connection also goes with the next verse. For God is spirit, and he must be worshiped in spirit. I think that also... God is not, that's, that word spirit, when it says God is spirit, speaks of his essence. He's a spirit, and we relate to him in that way. 
I need the Holy Spirit. Don't get me wrong. I need the Holy Spirit to energize worship. I need the Holy Spirit to drive truths into my heart. I need the Holy Spirit to help me say the things I need to say. I need the Holy Spirit to help me in worship. I just think this is talking about the inner man. It's moved to the inside of me. I will put my law within your heart. It will no longer be outside of you. It will be inside of you. True worshipers are those who worship from the inner man because God has done a work in the inner man. It's not just externals. It's not just going through motions. And so this brings up uh, just some truths about this. Uh, It's from the heart. It's not external. I've said that. It's immaterial part of me. Everybody, you have an inner man, an outer man. There's only two parts to you. Inner man, outer man. The immaterial part of you, that's what I'm talking about right now. In the Old Testament, God demanded this as well. It's nothing new, really. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. All your heart. Psalm 103, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Mary said this in Luke chapter 1, my soul exalts the Lord, exalts the Lord and my spirit has rejoiced in God, in God my Savior. Our body has to be engaged We go places, we stand up, we sit down, but he's not saying we just do certain things. You can walk into this church and just sit down, and that doesn't mean worship is happening. The inner man is engaged. The inner man must be engaged. Your entire being must be. You must, yes, go, you must walk in. You must do certain things physically with your body, but in worship. But if the inner man is not engaged, it's not worship. It's just superficial and mechanical. And it's, it's not just uh, enough to, for your body to be in a certain place. Because God is a spirit. He wants a fully engaged soul. That's what he's saying. Some people have said that when you, when you talk about, we have a lot of formalism in worship today, a lot of formalism in ritual Today, people are really drawn to that, Orthodox churches and things like that. that. And I'm not saying there aren't sincere people in those environments, but I will tell you this. The more you focus on the outward actions, the more of a distraction they become to your heart. The more outward things you have going on, the more distractions you have for focus in your own heart. That's the danger And I I would also go on to say that the people that have to have more and more of that outward external formalism may be giving an indication that there is nothing going on in their heart. Because, Because for them, worship is everything that is outside of them, not what's on the inside. I think that's what you saw with the Pharisees. They were extremely religious. They were extremely spiritual in the eyes of people, though they weren't really spiritual. God, Jesus called them whitewashed tombs. They were dead on the inside, but they had all of the ritual on the outside, fasting and giving of alms and praying in public and all of those formal rituals that give the appearance that something is going on. But I said this a few weeks ago, but 
a lot of times, all of that stuff can be a distraction. All that external stuff can be a distraction because it takes your concentration of your heart away. I can, you know, you can, whether it's the burning of incense, all the gold and all the vestments and all the statues and all the, all that stuff. I'm not saying that people can't worship in those environments. I have talked to people who have come to our church out of some of those environments and they have said, I never once heard the gospel there. I never once was challenged on that. I had the externals down. I had all the the liturgy down. But nobody talked about my heart. Nobody talked about what was going on in the inner man. It's just where you're doing all the outward stuff. And that's the danger, friends. And then one more thing I will just say here. It's to to be passionate. And I understand passionate is different for all of us. But you just think of your favorite event in life, whether it's a sporting event, a music event, or whatever it is, and how passionate you get about that. That is what I mean by this. We need to have that same passion in worshiping God. And something else I would say about this in terms of this inner man, the inner man side of this, this statement here, is we tend, we live in a culture where we're spectators. We live in a culture where we're always in the audience watching somebody else do it. We live in a culture where we are simply passive, not active. We live in a culture where television and sporting events and concerts, we're just watching other people perform. And we tend to think that way when we walk into the church. I'm going to show up today, I'm going to sit in my pew, and I'm going to watch the guys up front do the worship. That's not worship. All they do is you sit back and expect us to entertain you somehow so you can critique us on how well we did as if you're our audience. You're not our audience. I'm not your audience. God is our audience. He's watching you. He's watching me. He wants to know how I'm going to work and do worship today. That's what he wants to know. You say you've gone to worship. Well, prove it to me. Let me see that. Let me see what your heart is like. Let me see how well, let me see if you do these prescribed things just in a rote fashion, mechanical fashion, or if you do them from the heart. What is the condition of your heart as you gathered here this morning? Have you, has your mind just wandered away and you've already turned me off a long time ago? Or have you, have you engaged in what is being said? Are you looking to the scripture? Are you looking to God? You get the point. This is not a performance. Sunday mornings are not a performance. It's not for you to critique and decide if I got something out of this or not or whatever. That's not, that's not it. You need to get that mindset out of the way. That's, that's a wrong mindset. You come here to serve. You come here to bring glory to God. You come here to say things and sing songs and pray and join in in the, the teaching of God's word and looking for ways that, God, I can apply that, that I might be more glorifying to you. And I come here, God, because I want to encourage others. I got 41 another's I got to work on this week. God, help me do one today in church. Just one. I'm not thinking about me. I'm thinking about how I can bring glory to God by how he would use me in other people's lives. So, 
Much of what we call worship today is just a spectator sport. You know this. It's entertainment. Uh, and we, we, just, we want to equip you to be worshipers. We want to equip you to bring glory to God in, in our time of worship. We want our worship to be rich and true and, and not just mechanical. We want our worship to truly honor God. It's just mindless entertainment. And too many churches cater to that. And may God help us not to, not to do that. Well, it's time for us to come to the communion table. Grade yourself right now in your mind. Grade yourself. Now confess your sin. We all need to, right? We all fall short in this. We all fall short in this. Ask God to prepare your heart now as we come to this communion table. For this is, this is worship. This is worship. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you, God, for this table that we are going to enjoy and serve to this congregation. Enjoy in the sense, God, that we are going to be remembering the greatest thing that ever happened to any of us, and that is our salvation in Christ. Let's give praise and glory to you. In Jesus' name, amen.